This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Mom and Dad Are Fighting is sponsored by Little Passports. Keep your kids busy this summer with Little Passports, the award-winning subscription for kids. And right now, Mom and Dad Are Fighting listeners can save 40% on their first month today with promo code MOMANDDAD40. Learn more at littlepassports.com slash momanddad. And by Warby Parker, a new concept in eyewear. Warby Parker makes buying glasses online easy, risk-free, and most of all, enjoyable. Get free three-day shipping on your final frame choice when you go to warbyparker.com slash momanddad. And by audible.com, offering more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products. This summer, check out a program for young readers curated by best-selling author James Patterson. Find out more at audible.com slash Patterson. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to Mom and Dad Are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, August 13th, the Lower Your Expectations edition. I'm Allison Benedict, an editor at Slate and the mom of Harry 6, Sam 4, and Wally 2. And I'm Jessica Winter. I'm also an editor at Slate, and I'm the mom of Devin, who is nine months old. Dan is off again this week, but that is great because Jessica is here. Hey. Hello. Thank you for doing this again. Thank you for having me. So on today's show, we'll talk to Slate senior business correspondent Jordan Weissman about the state of college tuition, how people are paying for it or not, and what plans out there for fixing it make sense. Then Amanda Hess will join us to talk about the insane world of parenting vlogging on YouTube. Also, parenting triumphs and fails, a listener call about punishments and recommendations. And for our Slate Plus segment, Slate Tech Writer, I'm saying Slate so many times, Slate, 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 <laughs> Slate Tech Writer and new parent Will Remus will come on to tell us about a recent triumph or fail and maybe even clue us into how he's using technology to help parent a newborn. So go to slate.com slash plus to sign up if you haven't already. But before we get to that, some announcements. Don't zone out. This one is important. I mean, they're all important, but this one is the most important <laughs> to me. We have a lot of listeners. You guys are great. But we do not have a lot of likes on our Facebook page. So this week, instead of imploring you to corner a friend in a cafe until they subscribe to the podcast, as Dan usually does, 
I am imploring you to please visit facebook.com slash mom and dad are fighting. Just write it all out. Facebook.com slash mom and dad are fighting. And if you like the show, like us on Facebook. It takes two seconds, but actually helps us a ton to spread the word about the show. Also, it's a place where we can interact with you more, which would be really cool. You can give me advice on raccoon-proof garbage cans. I only got one. I'm looking for more. Again, that's facebook.com slash mom and dad are fighting. Okay, now you can zone out. We have two event announcements. <laughs> before, I, we, <laughs> before we get to try and else. Okay, Jessica. I am calling all Slate Plus members and Slate fans. If you're in the New York City or Washington, D.C. areas, we are throwing a members-only party on August 19th in these two fair cities to celebrate our first 10,000 Slate Plus members. We wanted to say thank you to our Slate Plus heroes for your support of Slate with some celebratory cocktails and the chance to meet your fellow members. Noted Slatesters in attendance will include Julia Turner, Mike Pesca, and the pride of New Jersey, Allison Benedict. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to get your tickets, just visit the Slate Plus homepage, and we'll see you all on Wednesday, August 19th. Okay, one more event. The Double X Gab Fest. Our buddies will be live at DC's Woolly Mammoth Theater on September 21st as part of the inaugural Women's Voices Theater Festival, a citywide celebration of new work by female playwrights. Slate's Hannah Rosen, June Thomas, and New York Magazine's Noreen Malone will have a provocative conversation highlighting current women's issues. The show starts at 7, and there will also be a pre-show cocktail hour with the hosts from 5.30 to 6.30. And there are actually only 40 tickets total for the cocktail hour, so get them while they last. You can buy your cocktail ticket and a show ticket for $50 or a show ticket alone for $25. Go to slate.com slash DCXX. That's DC. The word double spelled out and then the letter X for tickets and more info. Okay, on to triumphs and fails. Jessica, you go first. I have a fail. Okay. This is the third time I've done triumphs and fails on this podcast, and I've failed every time with months in the making slow release fails. This is no exception. So something that everyone told me would happen after I became a mom did not happen in that I never made new friends with other moms. My social network now is exactly the same as it was before I became a parent, partly because I'm kind of a shy, standoffish person, partly because my maternity leave was smack in the dead of winter and we were cooped up a lot, and partly because the moms group that I did join always has their get-togethers on weekday afternoons, so I can never go because I'm here at Slate.com, our online magazine. This has not really bothered me, and if I'm Really honest with myself, I think deep down inside, I was kind of smug about it. Like, look, I had a kid and nothing about my life changed. Aren't I cool? So anyway, a couple of weeks ago, I was working from home in the morning and I set out for the office um, right around the time that Devin and her nanny were leaving too. And I can't quite explain this, but it just hit me that the two of them seemed slightly adrift somehow. Like they weren't quite sure what to get up to that day. And it hit me really, really hard that I had done absolutely nothing to foster a social support network for them. Because I hadn't made mom friends of my own, that meant that Devin wasn't making baby friends. It meant that her nanny wasn't making nanny friends. And it meant that these two ladies were kind of faring for themselves out alone in the world. And I felt really awful. Allison was actually witnessed to me feeling really awful about this, like, 
I wanted to be cool and above it all. And the result was that these two ladies who I care about a lot were kind of lonely and untethered, or at least I was imagining them to be that way. Uh, the good thing is that I'm trying to correct for this. I've been reaching out to moms who live in my building to make play dates and, and so forth, but it was just a massive oversight on my part, and it makes me wonder what else I'm missing. The way that this connects to my triumph, I am the Dan Coyce to your Allison Benedict this week is crazy. But before we get to me, I, well, actually, let me tell mine and then we will let's talk about it together. But before before we do that, I just want to check in about your last fail. I mean, maybe there were fails in between that you haven't told us about and triumphs, I am sure. But your last fail on the show was about not being able to get Devin to music together because she was always falling asleep. Oh, we started waking her up. And? Uh, and it's fine. And she likes it. We have a lot of good pictures. Yeah. And I think that'll be another good Triumph. way of... I think that'll be another good way for, for them to meet other babies and other nannies and stuff. But uh, before Allison triumphs, uh, if you're listening to this podcast and you're a mom with a baby in the Ditmas Park slash Flatbush area of Brooklyn, and you'd like to awkwardly forge a friendship of convenience with a fellow mom in the area, just reach out to me at jessica.winter at slate.com. <laughs> Okay, I'm very. That's that was awesome. Uh, okay, let me tell my triumph. What I am viewing as a triumph, uh, which is like the exact same story that you just told, uh, and then we'll discuss. So mine is yet again move related. I'm sorry, your patience may be wearing thin on these, and I'll try to broaden my parenting horizon soon. But this week we're still on the move. It's a huge deal. It's okay to talk about it. So, as you know, as listeners know, and as Dan Coyce has told me several times privately, I've been wallowing. Uh, no, and you haven't. most recently, I'd been feeling very sorry for my kids and therefore myself about them not really having friends to hang out with after camp and not having a social <laughs> network. I was hoping our afternoon sitter would introduce them to a bunch of kids, but that wasn't really happening, and I was sort of at a loss. I was emailing about this with another woman I know, a mom who also just moved to the town that I just moved to from Brooklyn. But she works part-time, and it's from home, so she's around a lot more with her kids. And she was telling me that the way she keeps away the blues is to make tons of plans for the kids and for herself. And that actually made me feel worse because I'm thinking, hey, I'm at work. I'm not at pickup where I can you know, meet other parents and where a lot of these plans come together. And then I realized somehow, duh, like I can still make the plans. So, like you, I went on a play date scheduling rampage. <laughs> we should probably coordinate next time so we don't have the same stories. <laughs> I texted everyone I even sort of know in this new town, which is not that many people, but thankfully our new neighbors have been very nice. I made lots of plans for the kids. And I think they had a really good few weeks. And to a large degree, that was, you know, I then had a great few weeks. Um, let me just pause and say, just as you did, I'm not confident that they were feeling upset by the lack of play dates. It may right. have been me projecting. Projection, yeah. yeah, but who cares? Um, so I know this seems like a pretty obvious triumph, and maybe yours does too, although when you describe it, it seems less like one. But it's basically... I mean, well, you described it as a fail. But for me, it seems like good for you, Allison. You made a play date. Like, duh. That's part of the job. But the truth is, I think the adjustment for kids might be a bit harder when the move adjustment might be a bit harder when both parents work and neither is around to sort of, you know, start putting roots down or give that little push toward forming a social circle dur during the week. And I had really outsourced a lot of that to our nanny in Brooklyn, who was a very social person. But now it's my job. And presumably John's job, I don't know how you feel about, you know, how much of this is also on Adrian. I think it falls more to me because I care more, I project more, and because of gender, I think. But regardless, it took me a while to realize that, like, I should 
help my kids in this way. And now we're on our way to being the most popular family in Mayfield. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was always inscribed. If, in you wanna, if you want to make plans with me, email me at <laughs> alisonbenedict.slate.com, but I'm busy. <laughs> So, triumph or fail for us? You triumphed, I failed. Uh, for you, the glass is half full. For me, the glass is shattered on the ground. You are triumphing. I am not triumphing. I do think that it is uh, partly a phenomenon of projection, as you said, Allison, and I think it is mostly a gendered phenomenon because Adrian doesn't feel any of this, and Adrian works from home. You know, he has more proximity to what the girls are doing during the day. He has more proximity to, you know, people around the neighborhood and building. And this, I don't think this ever crossed his mind and he's not worried about it and he's fine. And I'm the one, you know, many miles away in the West Village, like freaking out about this and like texting everyone I know, trying to uh, create a social network from scratch. So um, I think his attitude about it is probably a lot healthier than mine. But there's only so much you can do with these feelings you have these feelings, you, you can't deny them, so you just try to channel them into something positive. And maybe you'll make some friends out of it. Yeah. Okay, before we move on to our first topic, which is college tuition, let's hear from our first sponsor. Sure. Our first sponsor this week is Little Passports, the award-winning subscription for kids. Pen pals Sam and Sophia, along with their dog Toby, explore the world together and send your child a monthly package in the mail, each highlighting a new global destination like Kenya or Spain. You can follow their journey on the wall-sized world map and enjoy learning through letters, souvenirs, stickers, activities, and more. The themes include landmarks, music, animals, food, and natural wonders. You even get a suitcase. Do you have really boring black suitcases that you can't tell apart from other families when you travel, Allison? Yeah, but we do that like mom thing of tying like a bright red ribbon around the okay yeah yeah with little passports you get this like really like sweet bright orange suitcase it makes me want to up my luggage game in a major way mom and dad are fighting listeners can save 40 percent on their first month today with promo code mom and dad 40 that's m-o-m-a-n-d-d-a-d and then four zero learn more at littlepassports.com slash mom and dad okay what's next allison on Monday, Hillary Clinton presented her plan to make college more affordable, and man, do I hope it works. According to the College Board, average in-state tuition and fees at public four-year colleges and universities increased by 21 percent beyond the rate of inflation from 2004 to 2010 and by another 17 percent between 2010 and today. Forty million Americans have student loan debt, and the class of 2015 is the most indebted ever. But none of this is news to you. If you have young kids, you are likely worrying about how the hell you will afford to send them to college. And if you have older kids, you are likely worrying about how the hell you will afford to send them to college. If you have kids in college, you are likely worrying about how the hell you or they will pay off the tuition loans after school. In other words, the prospect and reality of paying for higher education in this country is truly frightening for most families. So... How do we get here? And what can you, individual parents, and we collectively as a country do about it? Slate senior business correspondent Jordan Weissman is here to fix everything. <laughs> no. Jordan, save us. No pressure. <laughs> do you have any cash? <laughs> One second. I'll check my wallet. Uh, here you go. Okay. First, just tell me, is it really as bad as I just described? Yeah, I mean, it's bad, right? I mean, let's, let's not kid ourselves. Paying for college is expensive. Paying for the college that anyone thinks their kids should be going to is probably more expensive. Right. 
And it's it, in a lot of ways, it's especially bad for upper middle class families who, you know, make low six figure incomes because there's that impulse to kind of send your kid to the absolute best, most expensive school they can get into, even though that might not necessarily be easily affordable in all cases. And so it, unsurprisingly, one of the groups that debt is growing for fastest is what you might commonly call the upper middle class. Um, that said, you know, I think there are like a lot of myths out there that people get worried about. Um, one thing, you know, there's this common misconception that middle class or upper middle class kids can't get financial aid, right? That if you have any kind of a decent, like financial aid only goes to kids or who have like come from poor families and then everyone else who's really rich can just pay cash. But that's not really, you know, true. If you look at, um, for instance, uh, you know, families that make $150,000 to $250,000, right? Like that's a fairly wealthy demographic. About 70% of kids at private schools still get some sort of financial aid from the school themselves, even in that fairly wealthy bracket. So, you know, again, it's bad, but it's not quite as awful as some people make it out to be, I think. So Hillary Clinton's plan addresses public four-year institutions, right, Jordan? Can yeah. you lay out just the basics of Hillary Clinton's plan and, and what you think of it and if it has a chance? Yeah, so um, Hillary's plan is kind of this big, sprawling thing. With a, it's almost like a laundry list of ideas, but then it's got one huge idea at the center of it that I'm I'm personally a big fan of. And basically, her idea is that the reason that public college tuition has risen so much is that the state's cut their subsidies for students, right? They cut their state, they cut the college budgets. At the same time, the colleges then raise tuition, partly because their budgets have been cut and partly because their expenses just keep going up. They do things like they decide to build a really fancy rec center with a, you know, a, a you know, lazy river or a climbing wall or whatever, or they have a lot of administrators. So their expenses go up. And so their tuition goes up. At the same time, the federal government is sitting there and saying, well, okay, we'll give out more, you know, loans and give out more Pell Grants to lower income kids. And they give out all this money, but they can't do anything to control what the states and the schools themselves are up to, and they can't do anything to control tuition. Hillary's idea is, which I should say has also been, you know, versions of it have been proposed on a smaller scale by Barack Obama, uh, by Bernie Sanders, actually on a slightly larger scale, is that we should kind of rethink this system in a way that everything works in a little bit more harmony. So what Hillary would do is the federal government would give grants directly to states and say to the states, you have to stop cutting your budgets. You have to basically match what we do. So you have to preserve your college funding. And then they say to the colleges, okay, you're getting all this new money. You have to keep your tuition low. You have to make sure that a in-state student who goes to your school can afford to attend without taking loans out for their tuition. And that's the bargain. So it's basically, it's, it's what I'm calling a three-part bargain. So everyone kind of works together to keep tuition low rather than this weird haphazard system we have now. But again, like you said, it, it would only apply to state schools. And I think that's because in the end, the college affordability crisis for the vast majority of America really is about state colleges. They, they educate about 75% of undergrads. A huge number of, of kids go through community colleges, which are deeply under-resourced. So, and, and plus, if you keep tuition low at state schools, there's a theory that it will apply pressure to private schools. You'll have a public option that really is truly affordable. So private schools won't be able to charge the crazy tuition they can get away with now because the better state schools also, like University of Michigan, Penn State, one at University of Virginia, also charge crazy tuition. It's interesting because at the end of your slate piece, Jordan, about yeah. this, in which you, you praise Hillary Clinton's plan and lay out why, why it's so good and why it's so promising at the very end, you say, but it'll never make it through Capitol Hill. And the New York Times analysis of the plan was actually a little bit more 
sanguine than that. And the point that they were making is that skyrocketing tuition is an issue that cuts across party lines and and might have the ability to cut across the Republican resistance to absolutely any public spending on anything. Do you do you feel any of that kind of optimism about it? So that that I, I'll take that in two parts. The first part um, is there are. Like I said, Hillary's plan is is a very actually like sprawling list right. of initiatives. And aside from this big idea I've mentioned, there are lots of little things in it that actually do have bipartisan support. Uh, for instance, there's this idea that we should essentially find schools that load up with their load their stu- students up with so much debt that they can't pay it back. It's a notion that's called skin in the game, and conservatives support it. Liberals support it. The higher ed lobby uh, opposes it very, like, very vociferously. But that actually may have a chance. There are other ideas relating to how students pay back their debt and the way we deal with defaults and delinquencies that might actually have some traction, that have some bipartisan support. So there are pieces of it I can see getting through. As far as, like, the big idea, my view on this might be colored a little bit just because I've, I've spent a lot of time in the higher education policy weeds. And there's definitely a group of liberals who have been talking about something like this um, for probably about three years now. And most of the kind of respected higher ed policy people on the right hate it, really hate it and have opposed it. So even if, you know, Republicans on, on Capitol Hill haven't given it a lot of thought, I'm sure once they start, uh, their their opinions won't be too positive. All right. I want to push you toward being our personal finance advisor. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, so let's just say I'm the parent of three children, all of whom I assume will one day go to college. Yeah. And I currently save zero dollars a month for college. <laughs> okay. What should I do? Start saving. Um, <laughs> <laughs> More important to save for college than my retirement? Like if I have this like, you know, um, if I have to make the choice. Yeah. Uh, if you have to make the choice, that's God. This is uh, to some degree money is... A little bit fungible here, but it is like, you know, it, it's I, I, you know, I know some people who will say, say I, I've heard people say save for retirement because in the end, if you don't have as much savings, you might get better financial aid. I haven't spent a lot of time interrogating whether or not that's true, but it, it's something I, I've heard. So there are a lot of different factors you kind of have to balance, right? Like for, you know, OK, are you really willing to put all of your eggs in the my kid will somehow get the financial aid they need basket and if they don't am i gonna have to borrow and then is the interest on what i have to borrow in order to get them through school going to is is that going to obliterate whatever returns i get on my retirement account i mean these are the sorts of calculations you have to do i i kind of personally think you're better off saving a little bit for each you know put money into that 529 savings plan that Uh, what 529. Oh, that what? A 529. <laughs> I know what a 529. No, 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 I know, but just no. It's for, for listeners who, just in case. So, if you don't know what a 529 is, it's it's a great option. Um, it's essentially a tax deferred save or a tax free savings account. You put in post. It's a savings account. You put in post tax dollars. I think it's up to fourteen thousand dollars a year per kid, and then you can grow the money in that account tax free. And then when you take it out, it's capital gains free. So it's sort of it's sort of like a four hundred one k for college savings. Um, can you only take it out for college? Like, is there a penalty if you take it out for anything else, I, or it's no? I believe there. I believe there is a penalty if you take it out for anything else. I, I, yeah. If I'm remembering right, it's only for college. And so, you know, uh, to some degree, there you have to weigh. Okay, do I want to have this money tied up or not? You know, but it's. I think it's basically you're better off not putting all your eggs in one basket. Put some money away for your kids' college because you never have to pay something for it and the associated expenses. 
put some money away for retirement because you know you're going to need some money for retirement. And then lower your expectations about where your kids should go to college. So here's uh, here's my feeling about that, which is, well, A, if your kid's like a super, if your kid's like super, super bright, Stanford and Harvard will basically let them go practically tuition free if, you may, if you're not super rich. I mean, you know, it's, I think it's like under a hundred and something thousand dollars now for Stanford. But the thing to remember is uh, where your kid goes to college probably matters a lot less than you think. It matters obviously for some industries, like, you know, for just networking purposes. But in general, what like economists who've looked at this find is that if you're talking about a really bright kid, this, like the schools they apply to is as predictive of like their future earnings as the schools that they go to. Uh, so if your kid is smart enough to go to is smart enough to apply to Yale with some actual hope of getting in, then there's a good chance they will earn like a Yale graduate. You know, a lot of what we do in life is boils down to our you know personal uh, ambition and wherewithal and yada yada yada. And you know, going you know college is fun and it's a great learning experience, but in the end. It's not really going to make or break your entire future if you go to, you know, the top 10 school versus the top 15 school. I'm a proud state college alum. And look at me now. Yeah. Right. <laughs> awesome. Like, I mean, that, uh, that, that's really it. Like, it just, you know, I think. But also um, I had also every, like, you know, advantage and opportunity in front of me. So, yeah, I think, you know, it comes down to is like if you're worried about costs, like don't let your kid apply early decision where they get locked into a financial aid package, you know, have them apply normally and let them shop around and see what they get offered. That's just makes a lot more sense than kind of, again, it comes down to kind of hedging your bets, right? Are you saving at this point for college, Jessica? I am still paying off my own student loans. So no, but this is something that weighs on me. And I do wonder if Maybe we just leave it until she does go to college and figure it out with loans then and use the money for different purposes like saving for retirement or paying for, at the moment, paying for childcare. So, no. I mean, I've been meaning to open a 529 for the last nine months. Yeah, I mean, it's... Clearly I've had other (laughs) financial priorities and haven't done it. (laughs) Yeah, I mean... It's hard. It, you kind of have to look at how the money that you'd put into that savings account, then project out into the future how much that's going to be worth, and then how much is it? You know, how valuable is that to you compared to childcare right now? And there's a good chance childcare is going to be, you know, more valuable. And could more you? Yeah, I mean, could you take? Could you take some fixed number like this is how much I have to contribute and open a brokerage account instead and just try to be smart about stocks? No, is that, don't do it. Don't, don't do that. Don't okay. do that. No, don't. Okay. Good Lord, no, don't do that. Um, <laughs> no, no one should try to be smart about stocks. This is like, this is a fairly... Um, well, by smart, yeah. I mean conservative. I mean, buy some blue chip mm. stocks, buy some really right. well-regarded... Jordan's shaking his head really hard. His, like, his no. headphones are going to fall off his head. The like, the 529 account, it's basically, a, it's basically a mutual fund. Like that, that It's a state... It's a state-supported mutual fund. And because it's tax-free, I haven't looked at what the returns are compared to the S&P 500. You can actually, you know, recently, so listeners out there, please don't take my word as absolute gospel, but I'm pretty sure the returns on 529s are consistently outperforming, you know, the ben- like a market benchmark. And so you're, you're just going to be safer. If if someone's listening right now, goes and looks and finds completely opposite, I apologize. But that's, but that's <laughs> email what, us. Yeah, no, email us, seriously, but, because I am, I am re- repeating this off the top but of my it head. Does, but it does yeah. sound like the safer choice. Yeah. I mean, 
in the that's how you, that, that's a good way to look at it though is like look at the past performance of your state's 529 account or state 529 funds or whichever state you're looking at because some allow people from other states to invest in them and compare that to how an index fund or a collection of index funds would have done from like Vanguard over that time to see whether or not it's worth it and then you have to add in the tax benefits right, right. so I mean that's that's kind of how you have to do these calculations but in general investing on your own is just like not worth it. The time, the pain, the tears, the inevitable tears, <laughs> the suffering, the the financial penalty. It's just there's all it's just not worth it. Um yeah. Okay. I think we should wrap this up, but I would be very curious for listeners to email um in either to tell us about how you are not saving for college, if you have older kids that you're preparing to or already sending in college, how you, you know, are paying for it, whatever you'd be willing to, (laughs) whatever financial, personal financial information you'd be willing to divulge. And we can read some letters next week. We don't have to use your name. Thanks, Jordan. Thanks for having me. Okay, let's move on to our listener call. But first, a word from our second sponsor, which this week is Warby Parker, maker of boutique quality, classically crafted eyewear at a much lower price point than you'll find in traditional optical stores. Warby Parker glasses are vintage style with a contemporary twist. Every pair is custom fit with anti-reflective prescription lenses and are available exclusively through Warby Parker's website and showrooms, starting at $95. That's for the glasses and prescription lenses, which is like $200 less than what most places charge for new glasses. Uh, My husband, John, actually has Warby Parker glasses, uh, and they look good, which is not how I would have described the pair he was wearing when we first met. So thanks for that, Warby Parker. Also, I noted in an editorial meeting this morning, I looked up at Slate editor Forrest Wickman's very attractive glasses and said, where are they from? And he said... Warby Parker? Yes. (laughs) Uh, Warby Parker makes buying glasses online easy and risk-free. Their home try-on program allows you to order five pairs of glasses, which are then shipped directly to you. You can try them on in the comfort of your own home and get feedback from friends, family, and colleagues. You can keep the frames for five days before sending them back for free using the prepaid returning shipping label with no obligation to buy. So go to warbyparker.com slash dad to choose five frames to try for free. And by using that URL, you'll also get free three-day shipping on your final frame choice which is pretty fast. Thanks, Warby Parker. Okay, it's time for our listener call. Each week, we take a listener call and try to answer it. If you have a question for mom and dad, or one that you'd like Dan and Allison to try to find an expert to answer, call us. Leave us a message at 424-255-7833. That's 424-255-RUDE. Now onto this week's call from Darone, who's a father of twins. Calling to get advice on punishment. My kids, when I pick them up from camp, often ask for treats, and the treat may be a fruit from the fruit guy or ices or a donut, depending on their energy. And I try not to give it every day, but I do give it sometimes. The other day, one of my sons would not clean up his room, and I said, okay, you know what? You don't clean up your room. There'll be no treats this week. And he still didn't clean it up. Later that day, and then the next day, and now the third day, I picked up my kids from camp, and the other child asked for a treat. Both children did, but and when I said to one, no, he said, fine. He understood that he was in punishment, but when the one who was not in punishment, who had cleaned his room, asked for a treat, I said no also, because I felt like it would be unfair for him to have a treat while standing in front of his brother. But that doesn't seem fair, because now a child who has done nothing wrong is being punished. Your thoughts? 
Okay, so I don't understand the dilemma here at all. One of the kids gets a donut and the other one doesn't, and you go on with your day. But I have a feeling it's way more complicated than that, and Allison's going to explain to me. <laughs> so I've been there, Jerome. <laughs> I agree with Jessica, and I think with you, your final uh, conclusion, which is that your kid who didn't do anything wrong should get the treat. But I have definitely done that because, well, one thing you did that maybe is is the start of the problem is that you made the punishment really long. So, like, by the time you're actually doling out the punishment, you are so not mad at your kid anymore oh, for not cleaning yeah, up his that's room. A good point. Yeah. So you feel really bad, you know, mm-hmm. having your other son eat a donut right in front of his face, which feels like gloating. None of you remember anymore what the hell happened. Yeah, you're living in the past. Yes, you're living in the past. So I've done this before with the shorter time span, like punishing, you know, no dessert tonight or something happens early in the day and I say to one of them, no dessert tonight, and then it becomes dessert time and I just sort of say, like, no one's having dessert tonight. Like, (laughs) we've had enough dessert this week because it's the same thing. Like, I don't, you know, by that point, I'm not angry anymore and uh, by that point, it seems probably like the punishment will be lost on my children, especially your kids are pretty young. I think definitely the punishment will be lost on them years later. Years later, oh my God, definitely years later, but days later. No, it'll feel like years later to them because they're so young. Yeah. So I guess my, you know, suggestion would be, not it's not a direct answer to your question, but would be to like have less drawn out and future oriented punishments, just like punish him right then, whatever you wanted it to be. Um, I mean, I think some people would probably disagree and say like you shouldn't take a toy away or whatever and people don't like that form of t- punishment, the give or take. That's the way that we work in our family. I can't say it's been very successful, but that's definitely like the only way we figured out how to punish our kids. But yeah, do it more in the moment. You know, then you just have to punish the kid who's done the wrong thing. Okay, I hope that helps, Drone. If you guys have questions, please call us. Actually, we haven't, we've gotten, we had a ton of calls for a while, and then you guys have stopped calling, and we would love to have uh, some more. So call us at 424-255-7833. Okay, now for our final sponsor of the week, Audible, the leading provider of premium digital spoken audio information and entertainment on the internet. This summer, Audible is partnering with James Patterson, one of the world's best-sellingest, best-selling authors. Patterson, who has been extremely vocal in his determination to motivate reluctant readers to embrace the power of books, has joined up with Audible to create a program that encourages reluctant young readers, like maybe some of your kids, to find their way to books by listening to audiobooks. The program also promotes the concept of family listening, which is a very cool thing to do together as a family, by recommending titles and suggesting genres that parents and kids can listen to together. The program includes a recommended listening list from Patterson, discounted audiobooks for family listening, reading guides for families, and an Instagram campaign so that kids and families can show where listening to books took them. Audible is offering mom and dad or fighting listeners a free audiobook of your choice and a free 30-day trial membership. Just go to audible.com slash Patterson, P-A-T-T-E-R-S-O-N, for your 30-day trial, free audiobook, and to check out the Audible James Patterson collaboration. Okay, Jessica, now on to our last topic. Last week was a whirlwind for Sam and Nia Rader, a couple in Texas. First, Sam surprised his wife Nia with her own positive pregnancy test, which he procured using urine she'd left in their toilet. Are you 100% serious? Well, yeah, I just did it. That's what I was doing. I was taking a dump. <laughs> I didn't have a baby. Then Sam announced to Nia that he'd quit his job as a nurse. Then just three days after the pregnancy news, Nia miscarried at around six weeks. We were so happy. And we were 
just laughing. You can see in our vlog from yesterday, we were just so overjoyed and it was like a huge celebration. And then it just, bam, it just hit us like a bomb. The reason we know all this and much, much more about the devoutly Christian Raider family, which includes a five-year-old daughter and a toddler son, is that they videoed every second of it and posted it to YouTube, racking up tens of millions of views. Sam Raider later tweeted about Nia's miscarriage, quote, Our tiny baby brought 10 million views to her video and 100,000 new people into our lives. She turned our life around and brought us closer together, unquote. So the spectrum of responses to these videos were, was as broad as you can imagine. Many viewers praised the Raiders for their openness about miscarriage and the strength of their Christian faith. Some openly suggested that the entire thing was a hoax, or at least very fishy. Uh, Slate's own Amanda Hess, who's here with us today, uh, did a deep dive into the Raiders' entire vlogging history, their trips to the doctor, their interactions with their kids for a piece in Slate. And their YouTube footprint definitely opens up questions not only about how to talk about early pregnancy and what it means to measure a miscarriage in clicks, but also in a broader sense, the ethics of putting your family's lives on display in this way. Thank you for joining us, Amanda. Thanks for having me. So um, everyone on Slate's uh, Slack channel uh, last week, uh, that's our internal uh, messaging service, was watching and obsessing over the pregnancy announcement video um, why do you think this video and, and this family has struck such a chord? I think they're really good at what they do, which is trying to turn every small event in their life into a viral phenomenon. And they don't exactly care how that happens. But I also think that the emotional whiplash between the first video, which was this very over-the-top pregnancy surprise video and the second video which was um at least framed as a sincere and sad announcement of a miscarriage was too great to handle and so we sort of we all want answers as to like why this one two punch was delivered to us on the internet because it's really confusing and upsetting right what did you think of the videos, Allison, when you saw them? How did they how did they cross your desk? <laughs> I mean, I think I typed into Slack, sorry to reference Slack twice in one conversation, but like I hate these people. I mean, I'm pretty <laughs> sure that was my like initial reaction. The first video, which is starts with the husband extracting the wife's urine supposedly out of a out of the toilet seemed to, to then do a pregnancy test seemed very, very fake to me. The second video also did not ring true to me, but I have more trouble getting there to like to claim that I know that because, you know, if it is true, then I'm very sorry for them. And the fact that I think they're like horrible people who put their children on YouTube to make money doesn't make the fact of their miscarriage any less sad to me. I know you feel a little differently about that i i mean i just none of it rings true to me at all but there's no way to prove such things so it's it's better to err on the side of of believing that their experience is an authentic one i think part of it for me is that i just don't i, I fundamentally don't understand why you would want your lives on the internet in this way particularly when you have small children who can't consent to participating in any kind of meaningful way but i'm i'm wondering amanda you've spent the most time in this world of family vlogging and and families who who even support themselves 
themselves as, as this family hopes to through the clicks that they get on the videos of their day-to-day life. Where does the Raider family fit in this larger context of the world of family vlogging? They are right on the cusp of becoming a family who can support themselves on YouTube. And I think that has driven them to some extreme and sometimes offensive video-making techniques. And when I first saw these videos, you know, I I felt the way that both of you did. I thought it didn't seem plausible that both of these things, either of these things had happened. I also didn't didn't understand why they would fake events that made them look so hateable in the way that Allison responded to them. But the more that I dug into YouTube family vlogging land, the more that everything made sense to me. And then the more disturbed I was that there was a framework where all of these things would make perfect sense. But there are a lot of ways in which they are very typical of a popular family vlog in that uh, they are young parents, they're extremely religious, and... You know, the reason, the simple reason why they would make this huge announcement of a pregnancy that was so early is because they announce everything in this way. And it would be, I, after watching their videos, I could not conceive of an event that would happen to them that was even slightly momentous that they could not put on the internet. Right. And we're focusing on these two videos because this is why everyone is talking about them, but they have a whole library of videos where, you know, Nia will bring the camera in with her when she wakes up her toddler son from a nap, which just seems so bizarre to me. But if they are recording every single minute of their lives, then it's not bizarre at all. In context, it, it makes a lot of sense. They also have conversations with their older with their older child, their daughter, that seem scripted for performing and then placing them on the internet while at the same time feeling like completely normal, everyday interactions. We're going to play a clip from one now. If there are zombies coming and they're hungry, who would you pick for them to eat, me or mommy? Um, daddy. (laughs) Thank you, Symphony. I don't want to get eaten by zombies. Okay, so maybe they have those sorts of conversations with their children when when there's no uh, camera on, and maybe that's a stupid counterfactual because the camera is always on. I don't know. But I guess I wanted to ask what, I mean, given our evolving notions of what privacy is, and given that we all put pictures, or most of us put pictures of our kids on Facebook and Instagram, and maybe we've you know written pieces for Slate about our kids or blogged about our kids, I mean, where on the spectrum does this fall? Like, why isn't it okay to create a, a vlogging chronicle of your family life and make some money off of it. I mean, what what's fundamentally morally wrong, if anything, with that? I mean, that's what I've been wondering myself, because some of the impulses that go into making these videos, I can understand. Well, first of all, I ha- co-host a parenting podcast that's largely about my children. That, to some degree, I guess I'm making money for, because it's part of my job. But also, like, I, my kids do something cute, and I tweet about it so that other people can hear about something cute that they did or I you know there's some performance in the choices of pictures we all put of our families on Facebook or those of us who choose to put pictures on Facebook presenting a certain image of our families and editing so 
Yeah, I mean, I think like that impulse to like have a camera when I'm when you're waking your kids up from your nap. I don't have that. That impulse to like snap a picture anytime something especially fun is happening or video, even not to post it on Facebook, maybe to like you know WhatsApp it to my mom. I don't know, but to share it is strong. <laughs> I think in a lot of us. So where the line is, I guess it seems somehow more offensive. A because there's like product placement in these videos, right? Daddy, look what we have! Nature box! Can we open it? Uh, well, of course we can open it. Yay! It's time for snacks. So maybe that's the line. Uh, that's Yay. the line that makes me uncomfortable and it's okay. Maybe some other people would look at what, you know, the amount that I'm talking about my children without their consent on this podcast, the amount of pictures I put on on Facebook as you know, their own line. I don't I mean... Okay, I think there's one main difference between the stuff that you do as a, I guess, typically normal parent, I don't know, um, and uh, <laughs> even what a typical reality show does, which is, you know, create these story arcs in um, kind of real people's lives, which is that... The, like a John and Kate plus eight type of thing. Yeah. The viral economy is so strange that even though they are taking us on this journey with characters who uh, you can recognize if you are um, a regular viewer, what they're really trying to do is get millions of people who have no idea who they are, have never seen their vlog before, to think their kid is the cutest kid ever or that their pregnancy announcement is the most creative thing ever. Uh, to the extent that the titles of their videos, um, they're titled in such a way that uh, you wouldn't even know that these are specific YouTube personalities. It's like, baby's stuck in pumpkin, and the baby is Abram, who turns two next month. He's a real person, uh, but he's just baby in the titles. Mm. Or dad pranks beautiful wife. So they're just like strangely objectifying themselves even in the process of promoting their own videos, which I think is really different than what a parent is doing sharing a baby photo with their friends on Facebook. What for you, Amanda, I'm going to like ice you out of this conversation for a second. <laughs> Have a kid and get back to us. Um, what for you do you think will be the line? Like when you feel like I invite you to be a co-host on this podcast because Deanna's out and you say, I can't do it because I can't talk about Devin. We have a plan, actually. We age her out of social media when she turns one. Uh, oh my God, we're like getting <laughs> under the wire here. The the idea is that you know that first year she's she's just this cute baby. If like a picture of her you know got onto the internet, like it wouldn't necessarily be identifiable as her for the rest of her life. You couldn't index it back to her when she's ten or fifteen or twenty. I would know, you know, her aunt and her father would know, but I wouldn't. You know, we have I have an Instagram account that like. It's 100 people, and I've met them all in person. You know, we, I might keep posting pictures of her there. But that's it. When she turns one, no more Facebook, nothing. And in what little I've discussed and, and written about you know, being pregnant or having a baby, it's been, I've been pretty 
careful that it's all about me. Like we did a podcast a month ago that was extremely personal and extremely explicit about um, having sex after having a baby. And I at one point like had to pause for like five minutes and Anne and Allison were very, very patient with me where I tried to figure out how to answer a question without violating anyone else's privacy but my own. And I think Anne just ended up cutting the question out entirely. Um, so, you know, I I am very, very conscious of this and I want to err on the side of being, if anything, overprotective uh, about about that issue. And I realize I'm on a parenting podcast and this m- might sound kind of hypocritical, but that's that's the plan right now. Is that because you want to prevent the Google search problem, which is this like that anyone will be able to sort of trace her back to, you know, the very beginning? Or is it because you actually like don't think you should be talking about her diapers like that's an invasion of her privacy when she's two it's definitely not because of the google thing because technology and and how we interact with each other uh, using our devices and our computers is changing so rapidly that i don't think there's any way of predicting what we're going to have to worry about five days weeks or months or years from now to me it is entirely about the issue of consent she cannot consent to me talking about her and she can't even understand what I'm talking about and won't be able to for a while. And so just on that principle, I don't want to violate her privacy or her sense of consent, which I might be violating right now by talking about how I'm afraid I would be violating her sense of privacy or consent. But I don't need to go too far down that rabbit hole. But, I, you know, I... I wonder more about you and Dan and how you how you grapple with this. Dan stuff. and I just keep putting it like putting it off. We keep saying, A, that we should have a conversation on the podcast probably, which maybe you and I are just having it <laughs> so we don't have to do it. And also that we should like talk to our spouses yeah. and really think about it. I mean, I think it's pretty true across the board. I'm sure there are exceptions, but like uh, the bigger parenting podcasts, I don't not including us in that list, but like are usually with parents of young kids. Parent advice columnists typically have younger kids. There was a great parenting advice columnist tablet whose name I'm blanking on right now, but she, I think, at a certain point said, like, I don't want to do this anymore because I don't feel comfortable. I think Slate's former staff writer Emily Bazelon had has also wondered about that. I don't know where Hannah comes down, but anyway, you know, I think. Typically, you get to a certain age, and it's even if you're not thinking about consent, you are thinking about like embarrassing your children, and your kids are old enough to listen, and you can't actually do a good job anymore because you're self editing so much. I mean, it wouldn't be a very, our podcast wouldn't be very interesting if we didn't talk about our children. But I have so far not grappled with that. I mean, there have been a couple of things I've haven't said on this podcast intentionally, like that I could have said that I decided not to because I thought it could, you know, it just seemed too embarrassing for them. But generally, I kind of have not, I have no philosophy. I am philosophy-less. Right. Well, I love hearing about both of your children on the podcast, so please keep talking about them. <laughs> I actually have one thought about this, if, if you'll allow it from a non-parent. Yes. Uh, which was, <laughs> when I was a kid, uh, I was going through a bookcase in our house and I pulled out this baby book and it was for my brother and I read the whole thing and it was fabulous. And then I was like, where's mine? And my mom was like, felt really bad. And she was like, you were the second kid. And like, I just didn't have time to do that when you were a kid. There are like many pictures of me as a kid, um, but no baby book. And I sort of wonder if by the time your kids are old enough to understand exactly what it is that you have done to them. If it will be so normal that it will be sort of like that. And, um, you know, Devin's going to be like, where's my 
Facebook baby book. <laughs> Why didn't I get one? Where's my parenting podcast? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> parenting podcast is a little extreme. I don't know about that one. But uh, in general, I think maybe they're, you know, it's so normal that they will think of it as normal too. I don't know. All right. I'm going to have to rethink my entire philosophy so that Devin doesn't uh, feel left out with the cool kids in the future. <laughs> um, Amanda Hess, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. We will link to Amanda's fantastic piece about the Raider family on our show page. It's called We're Going Viral, How Parents Sam and Nia Raider Extracted Pee from a Toilet to Become Famous Again on YouTube. Okay, let's move on to recommendations. Jessica. I am a big fan of The All and the work of one of its contributors, Tom Skoka, who's also done great work at Gawker and at Slate, where he had a terrific blog called The Machines for a while. Recently, I stumbled on a column that Tom Skoka did for The All some years ago that I'd never read, or maybe I just passed over it because I wasn't a parent at the time. But it's called Under Parenting, in which he writes about life with his, I think he was then his two-year-old son. Skoka didn't write many underparenting columns, but every single one of them is a gem. Uh, They're so droll. They're so beautifully written and minutely observed. They're shot through with love and fondness for the parenting experience, but they don't have an atom of sentimentality about them. A couple of highlights I would call out among many would be the one where his kid figures out how to say fuck and the one titled, The Safety Seat is Ruining American Family Life in Your Metal Death Box. One of the things that I like about underparenting is that it doesn't really dispense advice. It's just these exquisitely rendered vignettes of family life that sort of achieve a parenting zen. And uh, we'll link to a few on our show page. I also remember loving those, but I haven't read them in a long time. So I look forward to going back and reading Yeah, they really hold up. Um, Okay, I have two recommendations. First of all, uh, most of the responses to our last episode when we talked about organic food and kids noted that we focused almost entirely on the social pressures and judgment surrounding the food and brand choices we make when feeding our children and pretty much ignored the science and research on the actual benefits or not of organic food. And that is a totally valid criticism of our segment. So I just wanted to recommend one old slate piece by our parenting columnist, Melinda Wenner-Moyer, which explored this very issue. Hers was exploring it uh, related to fruits and vegetables. The piece is titled Organic Schmorganic. Conventional fruits and vegetables are perfectly healthy for kids. So you can tell what its <laughs> conclusion is. Uh, and we'll link to it on our show page. That was like, I'm not, is that clickbait? Probably not. That sums it up. <laughs> so that's my serious read this recommendation. But my real recommendation is minor league baseball, or rather taking your kids to a minor league baseball game. Have you ever been to a minor league baseball game, Jessica oh, Winter? Oh, man. I went to a baseball game with Buffalo's minor league team. What are they called? The Bisons, maybe? Are they the Buffalo Bisons? My apologies to any Buffalo sporting fans who are listening right now. But yes, it was super fun. Okay, so you know, and many of you probably already know, that you know, taking young kids to a major league game can be kind of dicey. You're probably thinking, if you haven't done this yet, man, I'd really like to take little Nora to a Mets-Indians-Orioles-A's game, but will she really be able to sit still through the game? And is it really worth me shelling out major league money? So the perfect solution is to do minor league instead. We've been taking our kids to Brooklyn Cyclones games and Bowie Bay Sox games. We go on vacation every year in, Mar- to, uh, in Maryland, and that's right near the Bowie Bay Sox for a while now. And they've also been to one Youngstown Scrappers game, Go Scrappers. 
Oh, what a great name. <laughs> Perfect for the town, too. <laughs> uh, and th- it's just always a blast. The stands are filled with families and young kids, so there is zero expectation that your children will sit still or behave. They're, like, not supposed to. And there are tons of kids around for them to play with. The parks always have great little play areas with bouncy castles and merry-go-rounds and fun activities during the game for kids. The food is obviously a big hit, uh, just like at a major league game, but it's much cheaper, as are the tickets. Uh, So it's no big deal if you need to leave early because there's a meltdown or a poop explosion or something. So really, if you've not taken your young kids to see a minor league ball game near your town or near wherever town you might be taking a summer trip to before school starts... Although, what is it now? It's the middle of August. I think school has, like, started in many places. I'm sorry if you live one of these places where school has already started and you can no longer do fun things. But for the rest of you, <laughs> go check out a minor league ball game. This is such a great recommendation. My brother often takes uh, my four-year-old niece to Yankees games, and I think she is so patient with him, but maybe minor league is, is the better way to go. Well, if she can do it, great. I mean, I just don't have any confidence that my kids could sit through that. Yeah. And I'd pressure them to sit because I had spent the money. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's our show. Please email us at slate.com with your thoughts about today's show, parenting tips, and suggestions for future topics. Please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and like us on our Facebook page. And please call us with your questions at 424-255-7833. Thanks to our producer, Ann Hepperman, and to our intern, Jesse Chazen-Tabor. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer, and our executive producer is Andy Bowers. Mom and Dad are fighting as part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Thanks to our guests, Jordan Weissman and Amanda Hess. Thank you so much, Jessica, for co-hosting. Thank you, Allison. And thank you all for listening. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.